Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Network. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earworm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today's episode is about the three arms. But first, let's talk about the changing of the seasons, both, both literally and metaphorically. So here in Montana, there has already been a sharp contrast. I mean, it was an immediate transition from like hot and smoky and Mordor-esque living to a relatively cool wet and pleasant fall. Just pretty, pretty crazy how quick those things happen. You know, thinking about that in terms of what we talk about, in terms of military science, the two would be extremely different to operate in. So if, if there was a military force here in Montana, and I mean, like out in the field, not at our reservists who, you know, they do good work, but they're in a nice, comfortable building unless they're on FTX. But who I'm talking about is like if there was some sort of campaign occurring here, like back during the 1800s, then there would have been a huge difference in the way that they were supposed to handle this. You know, the smoke would have made long-distance marching unwise because it was it was unhealthy. I mean, people who I know who are relatively healthy people were having breathing issues. I have a friend who hasn't had asthma issues in years it's been years, I think, since I've seen them proper use an inhaler, but they're back to using one relatively uh, frequently now because the smoke gave them this smoker's cough, basically. So that stuff's not good for you. So any sort of long-distance marching would be ill-met by the conditions. So that would have limited people. That would have limited how far the army had to go. It would limit um, you know, what kind of rest they might need, what, what kind of health issues. <laughs> You know, they, they might pick up along the way. And then to have that immediately switch, right? And uh, I mean, the, the pluses of it were sleeping outside fairly, fairly easy. I mean, even though in Montana, it still drops, you know, to like the 60s or, or sometimes the, the high 50s at night when it's that warm. It's still like relatively decent if you've got a, a good bed mat and a good sleeping bag. Now contrast that with the weather we've been having right now. During the day, it's been downright temperate. You know, you could march forever, even in a wool uniform, you could have marched forever in this temperature. I mean, like high 60s, low to mid 70s. Yeah, that's most people's dream right there. And the smoke, of course, cleared out. The The rain is has seen to that, but that's a whole new hazard, right? Because the, the rain w- brings with it slick ground, which would be trampled absolutely to, I mean, our field that we fight on, We try not to go on it early in the season when it's still wet because even just, you know, 20 of us 
fighting back and forth on it, tears up that ground. Can you imagine what happens to soft, wet ground when a large force marches over it? I mean, it just turns into a mud pit. So while the temperature would have been nicer now, the mud pit would have been an issue. The night sleeping would have been an issue because it is cold and it is wet. So you would have been thinking about whole new health issues compared to what we would have had with the smoke. I mean, I think the the real lesson here is don't invade Montana. <laughs> but um, on a wider point, that's it's just kind of interesting to think about you know the difference that would be required uh, for an army in order to function in this environment. And I would invite you to take a look at your own. You know, look at some of the historical campaigns that may have happened where you live and, and maybe think about it. Think about how the different seasons where you are, the different, you know, weather effects that happen, like how they would affect a campaign in your area. One of the, I've, I've talked about it before, but one of my main uh, bodies of study was the American Civil War for a while there. And when I was reading about some of these battles, like the Battle in the Wilderness, I was like, how can these armies be so close to each other? And not know about it. How is it still kind of a surprise when they when they encounter one another, despite the fact of this distance? And then you go to South Carolina or Tennessee, and you look at the jungle that is around you, just this solid wall of vegetation. You're oh, I get it. Geography matters. <laughs> so just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a cool little mental exercise that I invite you to join in on. And lastly, before we, before we get into talking about the three arms, I wanted to talk about the changing situation in the Ukraine conflict with the, with the uh, special police action or whatever the heck the Russians are calling it. So uh, the Ukrainians have been enjoying a nice advantage. I mean, the Russians theoretically are supposed to have a better military, but as of this recording, they're on the run. You know, they're, they're pulling back from key areas. They're... Um, full-on route is what it sounds like in some situations as the Ukrainians are, are retaking ground. It's, it's a huge turnabout, and it's very different than a lot of us thought it would play out, simply because of the money that was put into the Russian military. Now, that being said, it also helps when just about every Western power is like, here, have advanced weapon systems. That certainly in, lends an edge in a war. But another part that is affecting this is the international pressure. You know, we talked about during our insurgency series about the importance of kind of pulling in that international pressure. It's, it's important if you're dealing with asymmetrical warfare to have other countries putting uh, embargoes or um, tariffs or just outright not buying goods from that place because you can really crash an economy that way. You know, it, it starts to be felt. And so this international pressure is having, making a difference, you know, not just on the soldiers who are like, why are we here? Nobody wants us here. We don't want to be here. You know, the people in Russia, even though the state TV has been, you know, pretty good at propagandizing everything, even they are beginning to, I don't know, not toe the party line, I guess. It's interesting. But all of these things are, are kind of, again, putting increased pressure on a swift end to this war, to a end of the Russian occupation of Ukraine. So it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting, again, to see the concepts that we talk about on this show playing out in real life, in particular when it comes to the politics of war, right? But I think, 
I think I've chatted long enough about things not the three arms. So let's, you and I, progress forward into talking about said three arms. If you'll recall, when we speak about the three arms, we're speaking specifically about artillery, infantry, and cavalry. And in this particular episode, we're examining the relation of those three things to one another and how their proportions change the way that we can fight. But before we get into that, uh, Clausewitz provides some definitions that I thought were, were good to go over as well, because we often use these terms and maybe we haven't defined them as well as we should. So to make sure that we're all on the same page, we're going to talk about theater of war, army, and campaign. So a theater of war is, quite literally, a portion of the space where the war prevails. Because you have the entire war itself, right? And then you have the different theaters. So think about World War II. You had the European theater, and you had the Pacific theater, where there were different conflicts going on with, with different people and different tactics. The war that was being fought between the United States and Japan and in the Pacific was done very differently and with different emphasis on various tactics than the one in Europe. And part of this was the, you know, the geography. Europe was one large landmass once they had actually gotten through on Normandy. And, and so it was large infantry movements over a broad area. Whereas in the Pacific theater, for the most part, it was island hopping. You know, it was moving from area to area, capturing strategic positions uh, by way of amphibious assault. So that has a different appearance. That has a different way of being done, obviously, than the one on the pure ground. And so uh, the theater can really affect not just, of course, the location of where the battles are taking place, but also how the battle is taking place and what difference there might be between those two things, even if the war is still being fought by the same country. And so these, these are separated by other theaters by some sort of boundary. And this can include distance, right? And so that's between the Pacific and the European theater, theater, that was distance. But in the time of Clausewitz, a theater might also just be, you know, this is, think about the, uh, the French, for instance, when we were still, and we're going to get back to that, by the way, at some point. But when we were studying the French Revolutionary Wars, and you had the Army of the North, and like the army of the east and the army of the south, and then you have the Verdun uh, army. And each of these is commanded by a different person and is done in a very different way in a very different place. And so you could consider, you know, the, the, you know, the boundary between the west and the north to be where that Vendée region ended and the north began, particularly, you know, like the, the Dutch Netherlands up there and so on and so forth. So... Yeah, so that's that's a theater, and they are they're more than just a piece on their own. They're a, they're a part of the they're also a they're a part of the whole, but they're also a piece in of themselves. A theater is kind of a self-contained area. You know, if we're talking about again like battles in in mountainous countries, a victory in one place is going to be somewhat stunted because of the chances of defeat in other places because things are so broken up. That can be the same here. You know, somebody can do well in a particular theater and then do poorly in another. 
Germany, for instance, if you think about Germany during World War II, it had two theaters too, at the very least. It had the Eastern theater where it was uh, duking it out with Russia, and then the Western theater where it had Fortress Europe set up along the coastline there. So uh, yeah, yeah, theater, theater is definitely not something that we necessarily deal with. You know, for us in physical wargaming, for instance, a theater might be an event, right? That might be our theater of war for the time. And there's a bunch of events going on all over the place, but that's the event that we're at. So the next one is, is directly related to the theater of war, and that is the army. And an army, the way that Clausewitz defines them, is a mass of troops in the same theater, right? So this mass of troops under this person is in this theater. That's the army. You know, the army of Northern Virginia, the army of the Potomac, specific armies for specific regions, for specific theaters, right? And this can also be applied to irregular units in an asymmetrical war. So like, you know, the army um, that the Taliban had during the war in Afghanistan, well, that could have been divided into armies as well. Different, different sects in various geographic regions would have counted as different armies, especially if you consider the politics of, a, of, of a traditional rural Afghanistan, which is kind of based around warlords in, in their own areas that, that kind of loosely work together. Each of these places is, is a theater. Each of them has their own challenges and their own people to go up against. So even with irregular units, you can talk about it. And so these concepts, these concepts of theater, which is the place in which things are taking, the, the things are taking place, the geographical area that is defined by its own bounds, and the army, which is the force that is operating within that, that space, of course, they, you can't have one without the other. If you, have, you know, if you have one and not the other, then that's either a garrison, right? Where there's no real, you know, combat taking place, or it's, I don't know, Disneyland, just like, I don't know, you know, a geographic place someplace. So that's army and theater of war. And so kind of proceeding from that is campaign. And a campaign, as Clausewitz defines it, is a, the sum of military events which have taken place in one theater, right? So the uh, Shenandoah, and it's and the, the the back and forth that took place there between the Union and the Confederacy. Well, that is was, was all the Shenandoah campaign, and it didn't affect in many ways the campaigns that were going on other places, except for maybe freeing up troops once it was done. But in terms of what was happening there, it affected Shenandoah, and therefore that was the theater of war, and that's where the campaign was taking place. And this can also be divided up by year or by a temporary suspension in hostility as well. So, you know, the campaign of 1804, the Tet Offensive in, in Vietnam, these were shorter things that were, were done as a campaign, but, but even though the war went on longer, particularly if we're talking about Vietnam, that particular campaign was only as long as it lasted. So these are our definitions kind of going into the rest of this. And when we're talking about relation of power, which is ultimately what we're talking about when we speak about the three arms, um, first, we need to consider these necessary conditions of fighting, right? These are things that, that will be involved in every single fight that we're in. You know, we have numeric strength, the organization respective of both sides, the state of both sides, which is to say who's backing them, the level of maintenance on those sides, and the country and ground. You know, these are, these are conditions that will be present in every single fight, in every single war. And they kind of feed in to this relation of power. And we've discussed before 
that numeric superiority is one of the most important things. If we can have more people than our opponent, that immediately puts us in an advantageous position. But we can also intensify that, right? We can take our numbers and make them even more impactful by using courage and spirit, for instance. And I mean, this is part of the reason we're talking about morale so much. I mean, how many episodes have I done where we speak about keeping morale up, not just for the individual, but for whatever group we're a part of? Well, it's, it's extremely important because again, it's a multiplier, right? If we've got that military, like numeric superiority, and then we've got the multipliers of courage and spirit that come from good morale, those numbers mean even more. And so our, our, our superiority grows at that point. And this is also influenced by, you know, material things as well. The arms that are present, you know, if we've got numeric superiority and the best equipment on the market, that's also a huge multiplier. Equipment in general, who makes the equipment? How easily does it break? You know, this is going to be another thing that increases numeric superiority. The amount of drill, the training that the sides have huge consideration. And then the education and experience. Okay? And, and that's different than the training because education is knowledge of tactics, knowledge of your opponent, knowledge of the ground. And experience is actually being there. And so if you have these things, even more of a multiplier, that numeric superiority becomes even better. And when you have the greater numeric disadvantage, it requires a greater tension, a greater energy, particularly on the part of the person who is not at the numeric superiority. The pressure that is on them is going to increase naturally, naturally. So if we want to make the most of our numeric superiority, which is excellent when we're dealing with any type of conflict, let's talk about morale and let's talk about gear. So with these considerations in mind, let's actually get to the subject matter of this, which is the relation of the three arms. And as we discussed before, the three arms are infantry, artillery, and cavalry. Now, there's two types of fighting. There's two types of combat that take place on the field. And there's two things that, that are kind of different fields of their own. And the first one is the destructive principle of fire. How much can we blow up? How many arrows do we have? The destructive principle of fire, this long-range ability to destroy. And then on the converse side of that, you have personal combat, right? So the destructive power kind of back back away from it with the long range destructive capability and then personal combat right up close, right up in your face. And so these two things are very different, but they both tie in essentially to combat. Between the two of these, you find all combats, right? And so let's talk about where the different arms are categorized. It makes sense that artillery is categorized purely in the destructive principle of fire, right? I have not really heard of artillery people running out to join in a melee fight. That's, it's different perhaps um, when you're dealing with like bows and arrows, right? Because it's easier to carry a sidearm and, you know, drop the bow and kind of go into a more melee oriented stance. So that's a little bit different. It's a little bit different than when we're talking about with Klauswitz and the big cannons. And so for stuff like 40K, this is usually appropriate. Not always, because again, Klauswitz didn't account for space elves. But, you know, in most situations, the artillery is relatively stationary and just does a lot of firepower at long range. And conversely, on the other side, in this personal combat side, you have the cavalry. 
right? Particularly in the time when Clausewitz was writing, when they were still using sabers, okay? And they would ride into the enemy ranks and kind of tear them up. Um, yeah, the cavalry were considered personal combat. And in many ways, they still are. They're, they're still the ones that get into your face. They're the ones that are the most uh, aggressive in terms of personal space. And so that's, that's still kind of the, the case, right? When we think about cavalry in the modern sense, like right now, we're thinking about things like mobile infantry. So that's dismounted cavalry, right? They ride really fast to a place and then they jump off their horse and they fight on foot from there, right? But another consideration of cavalry would be tanks. And that combines the destructive principle as well. So that's kind of a, a mesh between a cav and an artillery piece. And then you come to helicopters, right? And that's, that's pure cav right there. And they still have the destructive principle. It's not melee. People are not leaning out of that helicopter to lance you, but it's still more, it's still closer than an artillery piece several miles away lobbing shells somewhere. So this is kind of the, the, the modern state of war in these ways. Of course, infantry is infantry. Ground pounders have been ground pounders the whole time. And so what he talks, and, and, and so they're in the middle, right? When we talk about infantry, they encompass concepts of both the destructive principle of fire and the personal combat. They can do both there. Not necessarily as well, right? They can do personal combat, but not as well as CAV because of that mobility factor. And they have a destructive principle of fire, but not anywhere near what an artillery piece can deal out. So between the two, or between these three, we have a fairly good coverage of the field. And Clausewitz says that, and, and I think it's, it's not a bad idea to agree with this loosely, that infantry is superior in general utility, right? We can use them for more things. And they also have the ability of standing firm and they're not without mobility. So the standing firm is huge. Cavalry doesn't really stand firm. That's not their point. Mobility is the point of cavalry. Fast, sudden attacks are the point of cavalry. Not standing there, holding a gap. And like we had talked about with artillery, the vast majority of artillery out there was not designed for personal combat. It's not designed for maneuver or anything along those lines. So you're not going to find it holding ground or you know, speedily moving into the other opponent. Again, unless you're dealing with bizarre space elves or necrons or something along those lines that break these particular rules or change them. Let's say change these particular rules. I, I kind of have issue this with this. I kind of want to pick a, a fight with a dead guy because in some ways I absolutely agree with him. You cannot fight a war without infantry or rather you cannot win a war without infantry to occupy key spots. That has been the rule the whole time. And even now, in 2022, it is still the rule. This idea that, that infantry is necessary to control these, these key zones. But it also depends on era and technology. You know, there's, there have been different times when infantry was way more important and, and times when it was a little bit less important. Think about the phalanx or the Roman, uh, you know, the legions that they had. Well, in these cases, the infantry was absolutely superior. They had arrows and bows and stuff, trebuchets, but most of these things were relatively inaccurate when it came to anything other than a siege. Uh, you know, catapults were recently used, but, but you're dealing again with way lower mobility, way lower mobility there. And so the use of, of infantry in this particular case was huge for, you know, uh, hundreds of years of human history. And then we had a 300-year stint in, in a in Europe that was called the, the time of the horse, you know, the age of the horse, 
when the technology was more slanted towards cavalry. And this was the time of like knights, right? They were the best armored, best equipped. They could ride around and you, you still had the dismounted factor, right? So they could dismount and still fight as infantry. Uh, you know, they were, they were ruling the field up until the longbow started punching through things, up until Agincourt proved that there were flaws in the cavalry and that the situation was changing, right? Technology was changing and it was changing the role of cavalry on the battlefield. And then you come to the time of Clausewitz, where cavalry now has a more incidental role, where it's, where it's reserved for very specific instances, because otherwise it's fragile. It's fragile in the, in the case of all these other things. So the, and then, you know, think about the Huns and the Mongols and the fact that they had basically all cav armies that they worked with to amazing degree at that time. Those armies don't work as well against other army compositions, but at the time with the, with the technology that the people around them had, the, the Mongols rolled roughshod over everyone. Over the Persians, over the Europeans, over the Chinese. It was just crazy. These, these horse people from the steppes came out and they were like, by the way, we're here to party. And it was nuts. So there have been absolutely times where these rules can just get thrown out the window. Just, just throw them right out. Because there, there have been periods where certain things have been way more important in terms of like the way that the field would turn out than infantry. But when we talk about general utility, yes, infantry is and always has been the most useful in general utilization. But that doesn't mean that the ability to utterly destroy the enemy wasn't in somebody else's court at some time, right? So he draws some conclusions from when we're looking at the destructive principle of fire, the personal combat, and the, the relationship of the three arms spread across that, this Venn diagram. And his first conclusion is the infantry are the most independent of the three arms. And again, at the time of his writing, that was absolutely true. The cavalry depended on the infantry to kind of fix the opponent, and then they would move around the flanks or around, uh, you know, go, go behind. And, but, but to do this, they had to have the infantry. They had to have the infantry there um, distracting the opponent, engaging the opponent, and giving those openings for the cavalry to move in. So the infantry was, is the most dependent. You can have an army of all infantry at the time that Clausewitz is writing and have that be okay. Not great, but okay. So the infantry can, can do what they need to do. They can move to different areas and occupy them. In terms of Belagarth, this is still absolutely true. Infantry are still the most independent of the three arms. They do not rely on other things for their, for their, effective, for their effectiveness of what they're doing, right? And in many 40k armies and other and other things, other wargaming things, this is the same idea. I mean, the armies I play, infantry are huge. I mean, the the word bearers force that I took against Kaji the other day was entirely infantry. It wasn't a single now, and they had different capabilities, but also we're talking about 40k. He didn't necessarily plan for demon infested space marines, right? So, uh, but again, <laughs> bring it back. First conclusion, infantry are the most independent. Second conclusion, artillery are the most wanting in independence. Which makes sense, right? Like they don't move very well on their own. They're not personal combat oriented and that mobility just isn't there. So being able to operate completely independently without infantry to guard them and cavalry to kind of like keep other things off of them, artillery does not function well. 
right, on its own. It is not an independent thing. Third conclusion, infantry is the most important combo uh, in the combo of the three arms. So if we're dealing with the uh, proportions of the three arms, we want to have more infantry than other things. And I think this, is, this, this one holds true. I think this one definitely holds true, again, in most cases, unless we're dealing with an all-cav army, which I've absolutely seen. You know, Eldar can run an all-cav army. There are people who, who do, like, a super disjointed running play in stuff like Belagarth, where there is no hard center, where there is no infantry center that can be maneuvered upon. But outside of these rare instances, infantry is the most important in this combo. Number four, cavalry are the most easily dealt with, right? Well, they, they do tend to be the most fragile. That mobility comes at a cost. And, you know, at the time that he's speaking, again, you're dealing with guns, you're dealing with muskets against a dude on a horse. So, yeah, unless the, the person with the musket is distracted or, or engaged elsewhere, dude on horse is not going to do well against bayonets and, and the rest of those things. And so, and, and, and when we're dealing with something, let's talk about even the games that we play. If cavalry gets caught on its own, out in the open, away from everything else, it can be destroyed pretty quickly. Typically, cavalry doesn't have very high armor because of the high mobility that they move in. And I'm talking about Belagarth as well. You know, a lot of the times when people are sprinting around, they're not the people in a full kit. They are people who are running light and have the mobility for that. But that means that they don't have support. Right? They're not, they're not generally a part of the greater body. They're off on their own kind of trying to make these things happen. And so because of this, even though cavalry have this great mobility potential, they also are fragile for the same reasons. And I agree with him here. So cavalry are the most easily dealt with unless you're dealing with something like an all-cav army that works really well. Right? And lastly, the combination of these three arms gives us the greatest strength. You know, we're talking about one thing being stronger than the other, but when, when it comes down at the end of the day, having all three in our army, you know, having infantry, artillery, and cav, or at least something to fill those roles, that's important. And it is probably the most important thing that we can do in terms of achieving our victory and setting ourselves up for victory. Because we need each of these things. We need that destructive principle of fire to destroy more of our opponent than they destroy of us. Remember, the vast majority of war, especially between two conventional forces, becomes attrition. Who loses more? You know, it's, it's been rare that I go to a 40k table and I don't lose a single model. It's happened before, but it's rare that that happens because there is an attrition that occurs between your opponent and yourself. You know, the, I, I've definitely been on the field when you get a clean wipe, right? When you have a, a side that has local numeric superiority in places and overall numeric superiority, they have courage, they have spirit, they have good arms, equipment, drill, and education, and they wallop. And we don't lose a single person. But in the vast majority of fights, one side will lose people. And so again, it's, it's making sure that that attrition is in is in our favor. And the best way to do that is having that destructive principle of fire, having long-range weapons, having long-range capabilities that can destroy, again, more of our opponent than they destroy of us. But the other side is important too, right? We have to have the, the element of personal combat. We have to be able to function once our enemy closes with us. You know, if the world leaders are going against the Tau, the Tau are in a bad way if the world leaders get into their lines because the Tau don't really have 
a good personal combat option. They don't really have a good cav option in this way. So they are at a disadvantage, whereas there's armies that don't really have a long-range advantage. They're at a massive different disadvantage at range because they don't have that artillery capability. So to, to give the, the greatest force, to have the best way of kind of going about this, we need to fulfill all three of these roles. Infantry, artillery, cavalry. However, you know, there, especially at this time, one of the big considerations that Clausewitz had to deal with and the other you know, generals at the time was the comparative estimate of the cost of organizing and maintaining all three of these arms. You know, for us, it's kind of the same too. We're, we're buying our plastic crack. We're buying our shields and our garb and our weapons. And so the, the, there's, a, there's a, a cost between these things. And again, particularly during his time, it's a bit of a stretch for us because an artillery piece, once we buy it, we don't have to maintain it. Right? We don't have to go in and, and uh, tighten up all the bolts and change the oil and make sure that we've got ammunition for it and make sure that the gun is, is uh, greased properly so that things are going to be coming out without friction. We don't have to do any of that. We have our plastic bottle. There is no cost of maintenance. There is in Belagarth, for sure. you got to repair armor. We have to repair shields and weapons and people. So there is a cost of maintenance there, but nothing like we were talking about here. And, and so infantry, especially at his time, uh, would depend on the available people. How many people can we put into uniforms? And so the equipment that goes into them, absolutely. But how many people do we have and how well do we want to equip them? That is definitely part of this comparative estimate. Because I mean, if, it was, if it was that easy, if it was easy for a state to just summon a good army with good proportions, just out of air, boom. Well, then war would be very different. But unfortunately for most states, they have to operate within the means of a budget. And so infantry depends on, uh, depends on the available people, but typically is the cheapest. Cavalry, on the other hand, depends on horses at the time that he was riding. And so horses have to eat and they eat more than people. So not only do you have to have the food for them, you have to be able to transfer the transport the food to them, make sure the food can be stored in such a way that it doesn't go bad. There's a lot of consideration that goes into having horses, specifically on a team. And again, we don't necessarily have to deal with that. I mean, maybe people who are, are really good runners in physical wargaming, they might need a little bit more to eat, right? But that doesn't really put a strain on the state. Unless food continues to increase in price, and then that might, <laughs> that might change. Um, but, so again, at this time it was different. At this time, cavalry definitely relied on, on different supplies. And so making sure that your army was set up for that, expensive. Artillery was the most expensive, partially because of your startup cost. Buying the piece itself, buying the, the, the gear, the, the components, the, the, the ammunition. You know, again, within something like intellectual wargaming, they already have their shells. We don't have to go out and buy more shells for them. Most archers, we have arrows. And sure, yes, the arrows break or, or go bad at some point. But for the most part, we're not buying new arrows every time we fight. But when we're talking about actual artillery, yeah, it's pricey. Uh, so, so buying it and maintaining it, that's the most expensive. So the proportion then has to reflect this. We have to make sure that we have money to spend on horses, and on the pieces and the startup cost for the artillery, but remember that the infantry is most important. So, you know, when a state is considering things, it has to bring these, these considerations to bear. 
So let's talk specifically now about the three arms and kind of their strengths and weaknesses. So artillery, as we've already talked about, they increase the destructive principle of fire. They can just put out more damage at that point. But they are also the least mobile. So they are the ones who are not going anywhere fast, right? And they require support. So even though they have this great destructive principle, they are literally glass cannons because they require support to keep the opponent off of them, to keep the opponent from trying to engage in that personal combat where they are so severely lacking. And the artillery also has a supply that can be plundered. Remember these same shells that we were talking about, you know, if I take a, a, a position, if I take my opponent's position and they weren't able to necessarily take the stuff with them, well, now I have gunpowder. Well, now I have shells. Now I have an artillery piece, which are, again, expensive. So the fact that artillery can basically just be given to the enemy, that's something to be considered. You don't see that so much with the other ones. And if we have, let's talk about too much, right? What happens if we have too much artillery? Well, then we have defensive tactics are required. We're not going to be taking positions on the field. We're not going to be out there making the moves. I used to play an admech force that was primarily artillery. and some uh, honor gradoon crawlers in there, um, some chicken walkers that were las cannon, and you, know, you also had some, some castellan robots that had their phosphor blasters. And so the purpose of my infantry there was to keep just a screen. Literally, it was just a screen. It really didn't do much else so that the artillery could put down this destructive principle of fire. But I had to be defensive. I had to basically corner up for this to work because I couldn't allow my opponent to flank me. I couldn't allow my opponent to, to have any chance at getting to my guns. So I had to be defensive. And those maneuvers, once I did start going out, were slow because the artillery pieces are slow and therefore everything else has to move slow to protect them. So slow maneuvers, and we are reliant that our opponent then comes to us or puts themselves in a situation where they can be shot. If our opponent is using the, the terrain to their advantage or if they're staying far away to, in order to score their own points, well, that, we, they, the, 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 if they don't come, we can't go to them. And particularly if we're deal, dealing with real war, they have to come to us at that point, because again, that maneuver isn't there. So that's what happens if we have too much artillery. If we have too little artillery, we're going to need to prefer the offensive. We're going to need to get into our opponent's face. The word bearers, like a lot of Astartes armies at the moment, do not really have good artillery options. So often we have too little artillery within our, our ranks. And so that makes us very aggressive. When I've been, when I played my word bearers, I had no artillery principle. I had my personal combat principle and my infantry principle pretty good, like pretty uh, um, solid in there, but no artillery principle. And it worked out in this particular case because I was able to compensate for it, but I had to be aggressive. I had to get right in my opponent's face and take ground and make sure that I took more than they did. And, and this mobility, this mobility principle is required. We do need to be able to move fast if we don't have artillery because otherwise our opponent picks us apart at range. If we're a melee-based army, but we never close into melee with our opponent, well, that's not great. So having too little, having too much, this kind of changes the way that we have to play in terms of the, the, the battle itself. Cavalry. Cavalry, it increases mobility, obviously. If we have cav, we can, we can move more, we have more options. 
right? Because we can we can reach these places over here or over there, so we can kind of change it up without our opponent really being able to predict where we're going to be and when we're going to be there. And we can, we again, we can examine the situation and say, okay, we have these various openings we can go after. Which one is going to be the most advantageous for my field, my team? Should I rush the archers, right? Should I, should I rush the cavalry or the um, infantry? Ugh, excuse me. <laughs> the artillery element over there? Should I uh, backstab or should I flank some of the, the infantry over here? You have the options, right? As cav. And we have the ability to really capitalize on the follow through. Remember um, when we, were, we had spoken before in a previous episode about follow through and being able to capitalize on our victory. Well, the first level of that is to be able to send the cav to harass our opponent. So the cav really shine when we're dealing with things like the follow through and pursuit. However, proportion wise, if we have too much cav, then for one thing, in particular in the time that he's talking about, feeding them is a huge issue. Because again, horses need a lot of food. And if we have a massive amount of cav, we need to get that food from somewhere to give to these horses. So that's a that's an issue with the calf. And, and uh, as we had talked about before, another issue with having too much is the fragility, right? They can move really quick, but often the ability to work in concert with one another is kind of broken and they are easily dealt with in a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation. Because again, often calf kind of spread out to maximize that mobility potential, which means if we can move on one area or the other, we can collapse it. And without a strong infantry center to fix the opponent the cav is far less useful. If we have too little cav, on the other hand, if that proportion is, is really far down, everything has to move slower, which makes sense. That, that pursuit is going to be rather tough to do effectively without enough cav. Flanking? Yeah, you're, you might get like minor flanks, like a shallow flank from infantry, but without cav, you're not getting a deep flank or, or a full, you know, get around the backside there. We have to be organized with more care. We have to make sure that we're thinking about our flanks more because another huge thing that the cav perform is not just flanking the enemy, but providing counterflankers for us, for making sure that the enemy can't come on us in that way. And so if we don't have cav, we have to make sure that we are really protecting our flanks, that we are really taking into consideration that our enemy might have an element to their army that is far more mobile. And this, again, this happens fairly frequently where I am at a disadvantage when it comes to Cav. I mean, I play, you know, today I'm actually going to be playing my, my buddy TF. You're going to hear him on a little bit later. And he typically has a very, very high of Cav potential to his army as he plays Blood Angels. And high mobility in your face is kind of what they do. And so the one who doesn't have that, who has less Cav in this particular case, has to be organized with more care. And you'll be hearing this hissing sound in the background for about the next five minutes because my, my neighbor's sprinkler system just kicked on. So I do apologize for that. Um, and having too little cab diminishes our victory, right? We, we, we don't have the ability to follow through as well. We don't have the ability to pursue. We can't capitalize on our gains as effectively as we can if we do have cab. And so victory is somewhat diminished in this particular case. And both of these factors... Uh, play off of the idea of whether or not we have infantry. And so, you know, this proportion of having too little too cav, too much cav, too little artillery, uh, this kind of plays off of that same proportion with the infantry being the core. 
you know, being the core of the military machine itself. And so the, the relation of these, as we had talked about, depends on, on the state and what they can provide, and it affects the way that a war is fought, right? It, it affects whether or not we're going to be offensive with our maneuvers or defensive with our maneuvers in the way of having more cav or less artillery or, or whatever that combination is going to be. It will determine our choice of ground. You know, we want high country with good vantage points if we have a lot of artillery with defensible areas around it that can be easily occupied and garrisoned by our forces. Whereas if we're, we're cav heavy, we want to make sure that we have open areas, right? We want to make sure that we have the best room to maneuver. And, and, you know, between these two things, we often can choose differently between our ground as well. So the success of what kind of ground we will be fighting on also depends on what the proportion of these three arms is going to be. And again, these things apply to our wargaming as well. It also do, will, will change whether we want to seek that great battle that we have discussed, that, that, you know, that grand culmination of everything that is coming in. Well, do we want to just pick our opponent apart or have this great battle? And that's largely determined by, you know, the relation of the arms in our army. And so there's a lot here. You know, I could keep going on, but there, there's a lot of ways that this proportion affects the way that we can fight and, and how we are going to have to fight. And the wealth of the state governs the availability of any of these things, right? We had, we had talked about how horses have a really high maintenance cost with the, with the food element. And so if the state isn't wealthy enough to afford a bunch of horses, they won't have that massive cavalry element. Same thing with artillery. You know, if, if a state has the ability to fund a large artillery thing, that's going to be different than a state who can't. So again, it's, it's not just based on what we want to do, but what we can do, what we can afford to do. And the strengths and weaknesses of each of these things, not just in proportion, but in effectiveness, this is going to change with time like how people are, are getting adjusted to things, how their, you know, the tactics are changing, how the tech is changing. You know, that, that's hugely effective, as we had, had talked about. That changes the, the difference between the era of the horse and the era of the bow, the era of the tank, when it was super effective. You know, the, the tech really changes the way that war is fought. The difference between a musket and a rifle, woo! Yeah, that was an adjustment. Uh, the style, right, and the meta what is most common, what, what styles are being used the most, what is the cutting edge techniques that are being used, how are things being improved, all of these things affect the relation of our three arms as well. So the principal results of this section, let's just, let's just wrap this all together. Um, the principal results of this section are, one, the infantry is the chief arm, full stop. Others are subordinate to the infantry, and we just need to kind of plan for it that way, boots on the ground. Right. The second principal result of this section is by great skill and energy, a lack of subordinate can be compensated for. So if we have uh, an infantry force that we can move quickly, that, that we are able to uh, do a little bit more with in that way, we can compensate for a weak cavalry section. If we have very aggressive infantry that are able to get in people's faces, we can we can compensate for a poor artillery section. And so... But this takes great skill and energy. That's, this takes specifically moving the infantry and training them in a way that compensates for that loss. It's still not going to be as effective. You know, cavalry are very good at what they do, and they're the best at it. Artillery are the best at what they do. But infantry can, by great skill and energy, be flexible in this way. The third is it is harder to go without artillery than cavalry. 
that destructive principle of fire. And speaking about where, where he was from, that's absolutely true. When we're dealing with war in the late 1800s or late 1700s or early 1800s, absolutely artillery was king. Everything else kind of revolved about the, around the effective use of artillery. Uh, at different times, it's been different, as you talked about. Sometimes cavalry is more important if your army or your unit depends on fast motion. If you're a high-mobility uh, force, then cavalry is actually going to be more important. So this one depends on what kind of tactic you're trying to use, because we're not fighting in the 17th century, or the, the 18th century, excuse me. And lastly... Artillery is the strongest of the arms, not the most, like, not the, the best with uh, different utility, but the strongest, the destructive principle of fire. Artillery is the strongest of the arms and cavalry is the weakest. This doesn't necessarily mean in, in, uh, an overall effectiveness, but these are, good, these are good things to consider. So we've covered all this, all this stuff uh, about the, the three arms, and I think we want to see it kind of play out a little bit. And so, you know, we're going to have a little before and after with TF. Here to give us a cavalryman's perspective on both Bellegarth and 40K is my good friend and uh, returning friend of the show, Jeff, how you doing, bud? Oh, not too bad. Just happy to be here. I, I like it, too. So, by cab definition in something like Bellegarth, you spend most of your time detached from the greater whole, uh, looking for shots at the opponent's flank and the rear, and, of course, the all-important other anti-cav stuff. You weren't always this way. I mean, they're, they're, these are acquired skills, right? These are things that m most people don't do. A lot of people stay in the infantry line or they work in the artillery squads. You, you cavalry guys are a unique breed. So what goes into that? Like, how do you get to that point? Uh, well, I, I mean, I started by learning to fight on the run and that transitioned into being able to fight good while running, which is a useful trait for anyone who fills the cavalry kind of role. Sure. Um, so I just kind of fell into it naturally that way. Uh, just looking for when I wasn't as good of a fighter, but still was doing those tactics, looking for any opportunities I could to go either put enough pressure on to, to save some of my friends or get let my friends completely distract them and get around behind and just do a lot of damage uh, where no one is expecting it. Sure. And and the things you're talking about, though, require a lot of timing. It sounds like a high-risk, high-reward situation. Oh, absolutely. It's a... Uh, I mean, for me, it was a lot of trial and error. Right. And just learning what opportunities... Like, the, the timing on... How, like, okay, I see that opportunity based on what I know, like, can I make it there to make a difference? Or is me getting there going to get attention drawn back to me and just screw up everything up? Is, is it worth it to do it then? Or should I just wait? And so it's, it's a lot of trial and error for me. Like I said, um, yeah, we've gotten pretty good at it. I, I, I try. <laughs> is there a particular thing you look for? Is there is there a um, is there a moment when you know that the pursuit is not just uh, necessary but also relatively safe to do? 
a combination of things. Like I, I do look at uh, eye contact a lot. Mm-hmm. Like how often people are turning, like shifting their eyes back to me is an indication of how much attention they're actually paying attention to me right. or giving me. Uh, so like the less they're giving me or if, if their windows between are long enough, I can start to make it like a timing. Like, okay, if I, I have to be this close based on their timing of how often they're looking back and forth at me and whatever else they're paying attention to, to be able to make it there with any certainty without them like looking back based off that timing that can change at any moment but like it's one of the, the the big things i look at it's also something i use like in archery but that's a different topic so and we could talk about that too like i wanted to get a, a kind of a cab perspective as too but you also shoot and so you have absolutely good things to share there especially as kind of a um unique or, or a uh, yeah like unusual. my style of archery isn't so much artillery it's it's mobile so it is much more like cavalry like horse archery you're like a stuff. tank kind of combining uh, the yeah. ideas of of cavalry and artillery when you're in those moments because yeah. you're mobile but you can shoot good <laughs> yeah you know? yeah um and again like that that is almost entirely i watch people's eyes so like if they have again if they have that rhythm of looking back and forth just wait until they, you time it so like they have just started to look away when you fire because then even if they snap back the arrow's in flight so it's 50 50 on how fast they're going to notice mm-hmm. uh whether it's in time or not and so that, that's a lot of what i pay attention to and uh it, a lot of the rest of it is very situational like w- looking for it helps to be able to remember who's on your team and who's on the other team. Sure. <laughs> so you, when, when you see, like, oh, those are the backs of my enemies, I see my teammates facing them, like, I can get around to the backs or whatever. Or if a lot of time, being a more well-known fighter, a lot of times I can just hold an entire f- flank by just being like, hey, I'm looking aggressive, but I'm not actually doing anything. Sure. And just use that pressure to let my team just wreck the other side and not even have to do that much. And these are, I mean, and again, these things, I would imagine that it requires a great deal of patience to pull any of this off, to, to really get that timing down that you were talking about or, or, or know when to rush in and be able, because the, the glory is there. You know, I, you know, you remember being a young fighter and, and seeing the backs to you and not necessarily knowing how to time it, but just being hungry for that glory. Oh yeah. And that, that, that was the, the very early stages of learning the, the timing of like, oh, yep, that didn't work. Oh, that didn't work. <laughs> nope, that didn't work. Because when we talk about like the fragility of cavalry, like you're a good fighter. I'm not saying that you're fragile out there, but all of us, like we talk about numeric superiority constantly on this show and it, it makes a huge difference. Even if you are a good fighter, you can only block so many shots. Absolutely. And so as long as people aren't doing old Kung Fu style, like line up and fight you sort of thing, they can overwhelm you because you don't have the support that like the infantry would back over there. Yeah. Cause while I may be fast, my fast does not generally last that long. So if somebody, they have multiple fast people or anyone that's faster than me, I'm, I'm boned. Right. Or if they can yeah, get the numbers on me, also boned. Sure. 
Yeah, and and in those situations, that demonstrates exactly the balance that you know Klauswitz talks about, which is this idea of cav is awesome and can be used to capitalize on things. And again, during his time, cav was a lot more fragile because they, they had cannons and muskets against horses. Yeah, with with like we we swords. have we have big padded sticks and big slow padded arrows. A little bit different. Yeah. But still kind of the principles are the same. Absolutely. Because having a good archery squad, and let's transition a little bit over to the artillery, because Koswitz says that the artillery is like the most powerful element, like can do the most damage in an army. Infantry is second, cavalry is last. It has the highest likely potential for, for effective damage. So you found this in your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, when I'm fighting on a bigger field... As long as I have a, a decently sized team, I would rather be an archer than a melee fighter because I feel like I can get more kills more consistently as an archer. Hmm. Just using the combination of the looking at uh, eyesight that I was talking about and just positioning where they can't necessarily even see me, like shooting very obliquely like long range to the other side of the, the 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 line i've seen you do it yeah just arcing it over all the entire battle basically just to shoot people that aren't paying attention to shooting shots coming from there right well surprise that's the yeah. other thing we talk about constantly is if you can shoot people who aren't paying attention you're far more likely to hit them yep um but yeah archery artillery type things definitely i would say are a huge huge factor in any battle they're a part of but Klauswitz makes the point and again i think this is also true not just in battle but also in 40k that artillery may be the most powerful but often it is literally a glass cannon because if you can close with artillery that ability to perform damage lessens and like in 40k you tie up those big vehicles they can shoot whatever's tying them up but it effectively renders them useless until they deal yeah with that group you know, very very similar when we're dealing with Belagarth. You know, if people are running up and harassing the archers, there's not a whole lot that they can do until that's dealt with. Yeah, they either have to have a melee fighter come or be able to shoot on the run in a well enough to take the at least a legs to slow them down so they can get away. Sure, which is not a guarantee. Which again makes it high risk, high reward. Good to have on your team. Again, if you've got a strong archery section or a strong artillery section for 40k. This can really make the difference, but in 40k, you know, if we think about it, they kind of blur the lines a lot more. And if you'll hear, uh, dear friends, there's a Valkyrie flying overhead at the moment, and so we're just waiting for the for the Imperial Guard just to move on. They're scanning. They know I'm about to play word bearers. It's okay. They're just looking out and pr- making sure there's no heresy happening. Yes, <laughs> there's a big chaos star on the wall. Shh. <laughs> oh, good lord. But no, and, and like we were saying, though, like, when our archers are on the field, people notice. People are like, oh, crap, they've got three archers. Whereas the people wouldn't normally be, like, you might do the same thing for, like, spears or something along those lines, like a specialty weapon. But archers are usually the biggest cause of consternation, the biggest cause of people picking up different weapons. Yes. Finding shields, you know, making sure that they're wearing their face masks. Yep. Generally, here in Stygia... As soon as it it's, it gets called for weapon of choice, and someone picks up a bow, a whole lot more 
helmets and murder masks. Get, I'll, I'll, get I'll put mine on. Yeah. Looks a fantastic shooter. I need to I need to not get shot in the face. Yeah. But yeah, and so as a, as a force multiplier, as an ability to make your force more because all all infantry can work. You know, I've I've definitely seen large mobs of folks who don't have a whole lot of fast and don't have a whole lot of archers being able to be very effective because they've got members who are able to kind of compensate. You know, they may be, I, I've seen the BOF, particularly in the East, there was an Ockfest where I saw that they didn't have a whole lot of runners and they didn't have a whole lot of archers, but they were still stomping because they knew how to compensate for that. They knew how to maneuver their force to compensate for the lack of mobility. I've noticed a lot of times the BOF seems to be like a a weird hive that fl- flies around. Like, there's a dense cluster of them, but then generally off to one side is like a loose, form, very, very loose formation of all the, the ones who are kind of flankery, but not super fast. Yeah. Just kind of can take up a lot of space and be effective. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very interesting style. But it's very infantry-based. Very. And it works. And again, we were talking about 40K, these, these ideas between infantry and artillery and cav, they get really blurred. Because as Blood Angels, the last game that we played, I think just except for the, with the exception of like two units, all of your things were infantry and cav. Uh, yeah, there was three, there's four units. Because mm. I had the, the three intercessory squads and the eradicators. That's right. That's right. Um, but everything else was mobile. Yeah, everyone else had jump packs. And so how did that, like, I know that I ended up winning that one. And what do you think, with that cavalry heavy list, what do you think is the issue there? I didn't have the backup I needed close enough. Mm. Uh, just based on my placement. Like, the death company were there, and they, they did get a great charge in. Oh man, my terminators were just devastated by yeah. that. Yeah. And that denied my second squad of Death Company to be any useful, so they died. And the Sanguinary Guard were too far back to make it in to help, even until that last turn when I just ended up doing very little with them. And then you came back and just stomped them all away. Well, I was able to like focus, because my force was very forward deployed. Because I was going to go sit my Terminators in the center... And then my possessed just kind of work on the outskirts, keeping things from, you know, and like, you know, cavalry just being like, nope, not going to let you <laughs> do anything you want to do. Yeah. Um, the way my board was set up, if I did that, once you got up to the building or past the building, like, my guys would have been just in the open with nothing. Right. So I, I chose to set up very defensively, especially if in case I didn't get the first turn. Because then I'd just be out in the open to be shot. Just like, hello, goodbye. <laughs> right. So. Well, it's good to plan for that. Like, you got to um, plan for getting the first turn and the second yeah. turn, right? But I think I could have probably, instead of just having the death company there, I mean, it would have been a, probably not a great thing to c- count on, but since I did get first turn, if I had put everyone very forward deployed, I could have gotten everyone in, right. spread out around your blob, and tied more people up so you had less shooting. Not that you had a lot, but like the shooting you had hurt. Yes. 
and my my melee was where my game was at. Yeah, and so was yours. Yes. like we were both very very, and when we have our things painted up, very red lists. It's going to be a very red on red match. At least yours will be red and silver, and mine will be red and black or red and gold. True, and mine is going to be a deeper red. Got yeah. that like like blood red. Yeah, for the word bearers. I go for the nice, clean, and bright red. And so you struggle like your army struggles with the same curse as as most cavalry heavy armies. Like it's it's timing, like yes. not because that that need for timing that Cav has, even in a normal context with like an infantry heavy thing, becomes magnified like ten times when you have a Cav heavy army. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Timing is everything. Um, like I said, like just the timing of having my my other useful guys in that fight too far away at the time they were needed ruined a lot of my chances what allowed me to go 2v1 basically yes like if both of us have a, an army of two i was able to go 2v1 2v1 yep you know? yep it was the danger of splitting the force so heavily but hey like i said you you 10 10 of my like buffed terminators out there on the field eight of them went home after this one charge, it was gnarly. And that was without the guy that could take their invulns away. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. It was, but you were using them thunder hammers, mm-hmm. and they were and scary. with without having the second uh, buff from the chaplain, I could have had solid. So, like, I didn't even do as good as I could have. I realized much later, but sure. Well, at least you know, like, it's looking back and and understanding where we went wrong mm-hmm. and how we can correct for it. You know. Yeah. Like, I, I I already saw something that I should have done. Should have used one of those uh, cultist units as a screen. Should have put those puppies right in front of my Terminators so you couldn't come in and just be like, oh, by the way, your Terminators are gone. Like, you would have had to fight through my chaff to get there. Yeah. The, uh, the vanguard, as yeah. it were. Yeah. So, which do you prefer? Like, when you're... When you're I know in, in, you know, the Cav is definitely your preference because you play Blood Angels for 40k. But in terms of Belagarth, you're a, you're a good shooter and you're a good cavalryman. Which do you think you're you're better suited for and which do you like more? That is a hard choice. I'm like, sure. I enjoy them both a lot for very different reasons. Like, what are those? I mean, archery is honestly just the, the fun of it. It's, it's a blast. Um... The, the, I mean, so is melee, but again, kind of different, like it's a very different experience, like being at range and just pulling off shots is satisfying. Yeah. But so is getting up in the melee and blocking a lot of stuff, landing a lot of good shots. It's, it's a very different type of satisfying. Imagine it would depend on the mood that you were coming on the field with. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. For me, it's a matter of physicality. Like, if, if my body is not feeling great, I'll do archery. If I'm feeling fresh, I like... Or, 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 if it's like Sunday, when suddenly there's five spears on the field, <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my little, like, my little waster shield and my bat, just like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not playing that. Yeah, no, definitely mood and, like, tiredness level can also affect... My choices of weapons, for sure. Like, if I'm feeling more lazy and I have a working bowstring, uh, I'm much more likely to do some archery. Sure. 
Well, and the other uh, the other thing that Clausewitz talks about is that lack of independence that archery grants you because of your mobility issues. And even if you are on the run, like as an archer, that is your choice. Yeah. When you're being, when somebody's coming towards you from melee, your choice is to either stand there and take it or move out of the way in a quick fashion. Yes. And when you're moving, again, like you were saying, it's difficult to shoot backwards when you're moving quickly. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's it's just an interesting concept to, to think how many similarities there are between what we do and like, and I mean, there's also not because we're not dealing with shells screaming down at people right. and large infantry formations of first rank fire, second rank fire, except for people who play Imperial Guard. They're about they're closer to what we're talking about than any of the other <laughs> armies we're talking about here. Yeah. No, I, and I enjoy it too. Like I, they're they're both fun. They're both a lot of fun. Uh, and you were saying that when you're when you're at larger events, it can typically be better to do the artillery, even just because of the injury potential yeah. that's in the main line. Yeah. I, I just stand where the enemy's arrows land behind my, my forces line. So that, or like just behind that, so that I can just pick up their arrows and shoot them back at them. I would say more often than not, generally with a, a, a higher degree of accuracy, but that's also not always accurate it's totally legit i mean you know there was the battle in the the the, China, the three kingdoms period in china where they sent a barge across and the, the other team was like oh they're they're landing this is their amphibious force and just fired 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 arrows into it and those barges turned right back around went back to the other side of the river because the real part was they wanted arrows so that their opponents fire into these hay bales and they just brought the arrows right back around and so suddenly whoop Bunch Ooh, of arrows. Sneaky tricks. I, I like it. It's good. But that kind of shows like what you have to do. Because yeah. you only go on the field with a certain number. People, Some people go on the field with a quiver. I don't typically. No, I hold them all in my bow hand, which luckily I have large hands so I can hold a bunch. But that's still not more than like 10 at most. Right. And that's a lot to hold in your bow hand. It is. It is exhausting. And because artillery requires effort, you know, that, that keeping that, mo that uh, ammo up is something that other forces don't have to worry about. Unless you're using like javelins or, or something else that has like a limited use sort of thing. Right. The infantry don't have to worry about finding new swords for the most part. You know, spearmen don't have to worry about finding new spears because it's right there in their hand. As an archer, you're literally throwing your weapon at other people. And praying. Yeah, and praying. Like... Yeah, it's it's a, a large consideration, like shot placement, who who you go after. Yeah, it's it's a it's a different level of intensity, like you were saying. It takes the the immediate intensity of like the the firefight or the um the, like the the immediate danger, yeah. and turns it into a need for that that laser focus. Yeah, it's it's a very different game. Yeah, like it's a a patience and relaxed precision game for archery 90% of the time until someone breaks through and chases you down and you have to run. Sure, sure. Like an artillery person. Works. And then the melee is the melee. You, it's oftentimes chaos everywhere. And, 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 you know, the best plan crumbles. And every melee devolves into, like, basically one-on-one, unit-on-unit fights. 
and the, the balance of those victories or losses becomes, you know, the, 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 the whole course of the battle. You get that momentum going and riding the, that momentum is huge. And so that's the other thing that the, art, that the cavalry do. And that is the idea of pursuing, you know, after, after the victory is already won, or at least that particular victory is won, and you're trying to press your advantage, having an infantry-only army, even though infantry is supposedly superior, makes it difficult to capitalize, really, on those, those pursuit moments, which are so vital in keeping your opponent on their, their back foot, in keeping your opponent from being able to reset and get their, their I, I guess, their wind back into them. That's a huge matter of timing, too, and the overextension. Like, I know this is something from, like, last episode as well, but I, this, this pursuit and cavalry thing is so important. How do you keep yourself from overextending? Again, a lot of practice in timing when you, you go for gaps. Like, because there, there are often times where it looks like it's going to be a good thing, but if, you, if, you, if I had widened my vision a little i would have seen like oh no these guys are actually coming around this way so one once i get through this gap i'm going to be immediately trapped Mm. by these guys and so be reminding yourself to like survey around you so you're not just tunnel visioning we've got to have that field awareness yeah and then learning how fast you can get places is also pretty key so a keen understanding of your speed, of your ability to move around the field and yeah. how that influences the timing. And, and there's stuff that goes into that, too. You work out. Like you're not, you're not a, somebody who just sits around and then goes to the field and expects some form of athleticism. You're actually you know, engaging with your health and making sure that you have the physicality to do this because it does require something extra. Absolutely. You know, like actual, actual calf back in the way when, you know, with the horses, that's extra. You know, feeding those horses, making sure that they're taken care of on the campaign trail, making sure they're shooed, and they've got a vet nearby to take care of any wounds they their might receive. saddles are good in, re- in good repair. Right. There's a lot that goes into, like, making calf calf. And it's the same thing what we're dealing with on the field, too. To really be effective calf, you got to take care of your horse. Yeah. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> I'm going to start telling people that at practice. Man, you got to take care of your horse. <laughs> what the heck are you talking about? West End is just some country wisdom. But, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to come on and talk about this. Because, again, you have the perspective of not just knowing how to function in an infantry situation, but also being very good at being cav and being artillery. The well-rounded fighter. I try. The one-man army. I'm, I'm picking up spear, so I might, might join the, the ranks of the, the, the line fighters more often in, in, at events, at least. With the, uh, with the amount of spears that I've been seeing on the field, I need to start wearing my uh, male protection again. Gotta wear protective equipment. I'm the one that lectured you on that for years. Yeah, and, and I and never then, fight without them now. And now I'm on the flip side, where, where it's been a while since, since I have, and I don't know why, because it makes me timid. It saved me so much last practice. I believe that. Like five times. Sure. It, it would it like again i was i was sitting there being like i could run up on this person right now but the threat of what it might do yeah it's yeah. a real thing it, it, timing a, right we're looking at that timing <laughs> it's a, it's it's one of the considerations Indeed. am i properly protected to do this silly action man 
is high risk risk action. I would rather just wait for them not to pay attention, and then get in range and be like, "Okay, cool, can't get at me." Well, once again, man, I always appreciate having you on. Thanks it, for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Love love chatting with you about all these fun topics. Well, once again, man, thanks for so much coming on. I can't wait until we get to fight again and you know get to play Warhammer again and get to do this again. But uh, for the rest of us, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargaming.com podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, Signing off. <laughs> <laughs>